time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back. Cold yeah. War 105, <laughs> Indochina. Yeah, still We're there. still talking about it. In our last episode, <laughs> the Americans basically told the Vietnamese to go fuck themselves. Not our problem. <laughs> I quoted the uh, founder of the OSS, Wild Bill Donovan, who told mm-hmm. one of his agents, Archimedes Patty, the guy that had been in Hanoi for, I don't know, six months, a year, dealing directly with Ho Chi Minh, um, liked Ho Chi Minh, trusted Ho Chi Minh, Believed yeah. Ho Chi Minh, liked Americans, wanted to work with America. Um, yeah, Donovan guy. said to him, look, there are American oil and rubber interests that want France to get its colonial empire back. So, sorry, nothing we can do about it. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Now, yeah, exactly. well, we should stop and wonder why Ho isn't getting more support from Uncle Joe. Mm. Uncle Ho mm-hmm. and Uncle Joe. They're not really getting along. Now, no. you would think... Right. You would think that communists in a country trying to take over... Matter of fact, they have taken over half the country. Um, mm-hmm. That Stalin would be excited. This is the... There, there is no other right. communist country in the world right now outside of the USSR. This is it. This is the, this is the first step to global right. World revolution. revolution. Yeah, the rise of communists. Yeah, this is what Stalin wants, according to popular legend. He right. wants to take over the world, and here he has a guy known right. to the Russians, lived yeah. in Moscow for what and, ten years, did their no bidding in yeah. China. Yeah, worked for the Comintern in China. <laughs> On their instructions, founded the ICP the Inter-Chinese Communist Party, he's, he's staged a successful revolution Woo-hoo! and Stalin is as bad as Truman, not returning his calls, right. doing nothing. <laughs> Less America is doing more to support the communist revolutionary than right. Stalin. He got time. Break it down for me, Ray. What's going on? Why isn't he getting support from Uncle Joe? Well, as far as explain I to me the Ho Joe, the Ho Joe, explain to me the Ho Joe dynamic, Ray. Why there isn't a Ho Joe connection or lack thereof? No, I, as far as I, as far as I know, um, you know, Stalin's focused on Poland. Poland, he's focused on Eastern Europe. He does not want to upset the uh, Americans, and we've already seen it earlier in this series that when FDR dies. Truman gets Molotov into the office, pretty much bitch slaps him. Um, so I imagine that they're being wary of Truman, that he's still an unknown entity. But basically, at the end of the day, you do not want to piss off the Americans. And like you said earlier, they're the only superpower. Stalin can't fight a two-front battle. Why is he going to risk uh, antagonizing the British and the Americans and the French? Over the Vietnamese, it's just not worth it. He is focused on consolidating his gains in Eastern Europe. That's the that's the way I understand it. Yeah, I think it's complicated, um, and I'll run through some of the reasons. I think okay. number one, he's got his hands full defeating the Nazis <laughs> in the uh, first six months of 1945, uh, single-handedly. Stalin, shirtless, on a horse, riding bareback. <laughs> With a 
knife between his teeth. <laughs> I'm so turned on. <laughs> shooting lightning from his hands as he rides his through right. the forces. Right. Fuck, that's a movie. That's a movie I want to make. Um, he says, you know. Forget the, you th- forget the sex boat. <clears throat> Wodka, Wodka. You think that Stalin is just a nickname? And he rips open his shirt, big fucking Soviet-style S on his chest, flies off, taking out the Nazis. Um, so he's he's busy doing that, rebuilding the USSR, obviously, 20 million people dead, everything's yes. fucking flat and destroyed. B doesn't really care much about Asia. As you said, he cares about buffer zones. That's his number one priority, right. buffer zones. Buffer, 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 buffer. He had a big buffers, poster up in fluffers. his office. It's about right. the it's about the buffer, stupid, <laughs> he had up in his office. The buffer, 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 buffer. He was prepared to let Chiang Kai-shek take control of Southeast Asia. Not my problem. Right. Too far away. Got nothing to do with me. Yeah. Um, he's still promoting the communism in one country mantra, uh, partly to mollify his World War II allies, partly because he's got his hands full. Like we don't, we're not ready. We're not ready to spread yeah. the word right yet. You know, we need to. We, our economy's still fucked. We've just come right. through massive famines in the '30s in the Ukraine, the Holodomor, Holodomor. People still blame it on Stalin. Um, right. Whether or not it was deliberate or not, I'm still not quite sure. I think, yeah, I think maybe it was partly accidental, partly bad management, I and mean, partly, yeah, he didn't give a fuck about the Ukrainians. I mean, in terms of priorities, right. the Ukrainians were to Stalin what the Vietnamese were to the Americans. Nice one. They were like, yeah, nice not one. really my top priority. <laughs> my top priority. Is feeding the real Soviets, feeding the Russians, Ukraine, or, 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 or Churchill with the Indians. Like, right. not really my top priority if they starve. You know, millions of Indians starve, not my problem. Yeah. Um, so, any, anywho, Stalin's doing that. Then on top of that, he doesn't trust Ho. Um, you know, he... he ah, that's right. ...believes... There's, they believe that Ho is probably more of a nationalist than a communist ideologically. He he, he might ha- have the hammer and sickle tattooed on his chest, but does it wipe <laughs> off? Is it a, is it a permanent is it a, tattoo that James Caffin did? Right. <laughs> yeah. Or is it a henna tattoo and a little bit of spit and polish? <laughs> right off. And you, it'll come off and there'll be an American flag Ooh, under there. That's right. Because... He would know, of course, because he's fucking Stalin, that Ho's been working with the OSS. Oh, he knows. They've been giving him weapons and training and medical supplies. He's like, what kind of communist is working with the OSS? And everyone's going, you just fucking worked with America to defeat the Nazis. He's like, well, yeah, but that's different. That was me. I know that I hate the Americans. I trust me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, a little bit. Even I, I mean, I don't even trust me. Quite frankly, I I try not to tell myself what I'm doing right. because I could stab myself in the back at any moment. Right. In fact, when Stalin was doing his purges in the mid '30s, he wrote his own name down on one of the letters, and you know, Molotov <laughs> oh, came to him oh, and shit. said, uh, 
Premier Stalin, are you sure? He goes, yes, this Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin, he is the worst, he is the worst traitor. This, he goes, but, but, Premier, I don't know how to say this to you, but this is you. Why am I sounding like half French there? I don't know, but it's you. He goes, what? No, Joseph Brojevic, what, what, what was his name, his real name? Oh my God. Jugashvili. Jugashvili. Jugashvili, yeah. Yeah. You, who is this Yosef Jugashvili? It is you, Stalin. What? Oh, okay. All right, I'll let him <laughs> off this time. But I, I tell you, if I, ever, yeah. if I ever see him in here again, <laughs> he's going in front of a firing squad. So he didn't trust Ho. Right. He, 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 looked, he had a low, low blow view of Ho. <laughs> um, but. Also, on top of that, um, the the French Communist Party looked like it, it was in a really good position and might be coming to power in the French elections. So he was all over that. You know, he had a lot of focus on trying to make mm-hmm. sure that the French came to power. So he didn't even send a representative to Hanoi or, or an observer. Right. Like during Close the early by. stages of the Cuban Revolution, they mm-hmm. at least sent someone to Cuba. I mean, Stalin was dead at that stage, but they sent someone to check it out. By the way, they weren't too sure either of, of, about uh, Castro because Castro was ah. either not a communist at that stage or playing his cards close to his chest. Probably, I think, I don't think Stalin, uh, sorry, I don't think Castro was a communist um, in right. the early stages of the revolution. He was a nationalist. Like che Guevara was a communist. Right. Yeah. Castro was more like Ho, and like Ho, Castro ended up throwing his 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 dick in with the the the, the Soviet camp because they were the only ones Who that were going to support him. Yeah, yeah. You dance with you dance with the girl that <laughs> brought you, brought or the you. guy that brought you. Isn't that the American yes. saying? Yeah, you dance exactly. with the person who took you to the party. That's what he, Castro and Ho were like. But um, the other thing uh, mm-hmm. I have to say is that August 1945, America's right. got the bomb. If I'm Stalin, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> That's that Truman. He loves to drop bombs. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bomb drop. Stalin's out. bomb is... <laughs> Stalin's bomb is five to six years away at this stage. Yeah. Right. He's like, we're not uh, look, ho baby, bubbler. I love you, <laughs> love your work, love what you're doing. You're a <laughs> mensch, ho. <laughs> but I, the chutzpah on this Mandrik Truman. <laughs> There's no way. The guy is I a can... butts. <laughs> the guy is a butts. He knows bupkis, but he's got the bomb, Bobby. I can't. <laughs> I can't do anything to help you. I love you. But he's got the bomb. Do you understand me? Speaking of Yiddish. Right. Fucking, I read this story at four. I couldn't sleep the other night. Four o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm up, stressing out. I'm reading this story about um, uh, Woody Allen. This woman has come forward. Um, she's in the late fifties now. Um, she says that when she was 16, she was this gorgeous, gorgeous blonde model, teenage model. 
She's in a restaurant, sort of the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sees Woody Allen sitting at a table, catches his eye, goes to the bathroom, comes back, drops a note on his table. The note basically says, rather, you're probably sick and tired of signing autographs, so I wanted you to receive one. Here's my number. Give me a call sometime. Oh, shit. Woody does, starts having a relationship with her. She's 16. Oh, um, She goes great. up to his apartment no, 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 in no. New York, smoking hot, leggy blonde, yeah. um, and he has, a, like I think, like eight or ten years he's fucking her. She says he would, they would have threesomes, foursomes. He would bring two other girls up to, his, up to his apartment. Woody was doing it, man. <laughs> Woody, Woody had, had women. Oh, dude, that's why he was called Woody, you know. <laughs> that's why he got that nickname. Woody, he would. Here's a, Woody? Anyway. Oh, yeah, he would. Yeah. Not only Woody. Diddy, and he did. They changed his name to Diddy, like P. Diddy, because he, he went from being Woody to fuck yes, he did. So, P. Diddy, Diddy Allen. So anyway, <laughs> then she said when he met Mia Farrow and he started being seen publicly with Mia Farrow, he even had Mia come in and they had a threesome with Mia Farrow. Oh, my God. And then eventually she uh, left him and... Um, she went to work for uh, Fellini. She fell out of touch with Woody. Anyway, decades later, she wrote a book about Fellini and she sent a copy to Woody and he sent her a letter and saying, hey, uh, this is after his, this is like in maybe 10 years ago when he's with Sunyi Chen. Right. Uh, is that her name? Sunyi Chen? Sunyi. Yeah, Sunyi Allen, I guess. Sent, and he sent, he sent this girl. Uh, a woman, she would have been then, like 50. She's married, growing up kids, whatever at this stage. He sends her a letter going, hey, thanks very much for the book. I remember our times together fondly. Listen, I think you'd love my wife. Uh, I think we should get together. So he was in his 70s hitting up this woman in her 50s for a threesome with his former adopted child, now wife, Sunny Previn, it is, Sunny Previn. Woody, did he? He did. Woody, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, 16, not okay, Woody, even in the early 70s. No. Uh, But she says, this woman now, she's like, hey, leave it. Like, obviously, post Me Too movement, I realise that was inappropriate, big power dynamic, age difference, whatever. She goes, but I hit on him, fully consensual, Never regretted right. it, loved every minute of it, had the fucking time of my life, love him, love his work, love his films, no bad his blood, penis. all good, right. only wish the best for him. Right. But, um, boy, did we have some good times. And I'm like, Woody Allen, man. Like, in his films, Woody's all like, you know, the bumbling. I mean, in, so then, oh, by the way, a year after he started dating her is when he came out with Manhattan. Which, right. as everyone knows, who's seen that, is about a middle-aged man dating a teenage girl. Um, oh. He made a fucking movie about it, God. and everyone still went, "Oh, Isn't Woody, that that's kind of sweet." <laughs> yeah, and it's still, you know, probably his greatest classic. Uh, so she's saying that he made it about her, but she also acknowledges he had other teenage lovers as well. So it sort of could have been a God. mishmash of a number of them. So, um, but yeah, man. So in his films, he's like this. Sort of bumbling, shy, intellectual Jew. Right. Um, in real life, he was doing it, He's man. A he was giant like a Jewish fiend. penis. Fiend. Oh my god! How come you don't hear these stories about podcasters? It's just, it's not fair. 
It really isn't fair. <laughs> I don't, besides Woody Allen being my personal god now, I don't remember what we were talking about. I was had Stalin doing Yiddish about oh. the fact that Truman That's has the bomb. Right. That's how we got into that. We. I like when people write reviews and they say, they go down so many sidetracks, I lose track of what they were talking about. I'm like, well, no, how do you we think don't. we feel? You can rewind it and go back. Yeah. It's not that hard. Yeah, tap, tap, tap. So Stalin had a lot of reasons for not yeah. supporting Ho, but the bottom line is the first communist revolution after the Russians is Ho Chi Minh and he's getting no support, not even a representative or a card. It didn't even get like a good luck card, (laughs) a a, a fucking banana gram, a a fucking, you know, (laughs) naked model at the door with a bottle of champagne. Nothing nothing. from Stalin. Oh, God. Yeah. So, so it's the early fall of 1945, <clears throat> and as we said before, the Vietnam, uh, Viet Minh are in charge of the North, um, but they're kind of barely hanging on. And let's be honest, at that point, the Chinese are the real physical power in the North because they've got 150,000 troops there in the South. The French have restored colonial authority, as Cam mentioned in the last episode, when they started really heating up with the battles of the French with their superior weapons, which they were getting from the Americans, were just too much for the locals. They were pushing them out of Saigon, so that has been reestablished over there. And like you said, Stalin is not interested. The United States is still a mystery, uh, but the United States is worried about post-war revolution, like after the Great War, you know, they're, they're fair in a communist wave, and that probably factored into the United States not helping Viet Minh, um, Ho Chi Minh very well, because they know that he's a communist, and they are, and the communists are quickly becoming the enemies of the Allies. Now, as in an attempt to show the Chinese that he's willing to work with the nationalists, because the Chinese have left the Viet Minh in power in the North, mm-hmm. but they're pressuring him to form a coalition government with the um, with the nationalists, even though technically the job of the Chinese is to clear out the Japanese and allow the French to take control. Right. At this stage, they're saying, well, the French aren't here in the North right now. We're still taking our time about cleaning out the Japanese. Um which didn't really have a major presence in the North anyway, as I recall. But anyway, they're like, oh, I don't know, they could be hiding. You know, these tricky Japanese, man. How long did they (laughs) stay hiding on the the fucking island? (laughs) Oh, yeah, for decades. Decades. Decades, right? Yes. Oh, these Japanese, man, they're cunning. Cunning. (laughs) It's going to take time. I'm sorry. (laughs) So they're trying to get him because, again, the Chinese really want to be in control of this place. They don't really want the French back. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, we told the fucking allies that we'd let the French, but we don't really want the French back unless the French give us something we want, which we'll get to later on. So they're playing mm-hmm. their own chess game here. But to show them that he was willing to support the Nationalists, Ho released from prison a guy called No Din Diem. Mm. Now, Diem had been a minister in Bao Dai's government before World War II, but had resigned when the French wouldn't give the emperor more power, and he denounced Bao Dai for being a French puppet. He was a fervent Catholic, hated the communists, 
but was a nationalist. Wow. And uh, anyway, Ho releases him, offers him a role as a minister in his government, offers him the role as the minister for the interior. DM refuses point blank, partly because he hates the communists, partly because one of his brothers, who had been a head sort of religious figure working for the French, uh, had been round up by the Viet Minh and killed during the revolution. Yeah. So he basically says, listen, fucking don't like you, don't like the French, I'm out, I'm out of 5,000, declares a position of neutrality and then goes off to try mm-hmm. and establish uh, uh, his own movement, a third force movement. But, of course, anyone uh. who knows about the history of the Vietnamese War knows that Diem goes on to become the American puppet president for a while of the South. Right. Before he gets assassinated by the Americans. But anyway, that's a slog story. We'll, tell, we'll get to that 20 years from now. The way we're yeah, going. So, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so Ho is, Ho is trying to deal with the Chinese. And in fact, Chiang Kai-shek's chief of staff comes down and he goes, look, tighten this up. I want the number of... I want the influence of the communists reduced in the uh, Indochina government. So, yeah, so these guys are getting a lot of pressure. And I thought this was interesting because Ho has figured out by now, look, things are really ugly in the South. I'm, I'm dealing with the Chinese and the nationalists in the North. I know war in some form or fashion is coming. So they start working on it. They, so they start gathering up groups, units uh, in the cities, in the country, whatever, even though they don't have any weapons, they start organizing, start, they start training as best they can because they want to be ready uh, when war comes. And I thought this was really interesting. Um, so one of the guys, one of the uh, followers of Ho says to him, look, why don't we just attack the nationalists openly? Let's just wipe them out. Even though they're, supposedly being backed by the Chinese, are the Chinese really going to get involved and start fighting us? Let's just, you give us the word and we're going to hit them really hard. And there's this this cute little story that Ho tells. Ho is a lot like Abraham Lincoln. He had a story and a metaphor for practically every freaking situation. So I'll put it to you this way. So a follower writes down, one day in the course of an information, inf- informational session, I asked him, Respected uncle, why do we allow this band of traitors and assassins to survive? He's talking about the nationalists. At your order, we would exterminate them in the space of one night. Uncle smiled and pointed to his office, asked us in return, Suppose that a mouse entered this room. Would you throw stones or try to trap it or evict it? If we threw stones, we would risk destroying precious objects in the room. And Ho says, it's the same with counter-revolutionary elements. By themselves, they are nothing to fear, but they have masters. To accomplish a big task, we must know how to look ahead. So again, you can take on the nationalists, but you're just going to agitate the Chinese, and there is no way the Viet Minh are ready to take on 150,000 soldiers in Hanoi. It would just be the death sentence. So he's got to stay as calm as he can and placate the Chinese and pretend to get along with the nationalists. Wow. So much just wisdom. And he's Jesus. He's teaching with parables. Ho Chi Minh is Jesus, man. Wow. So much wisdom and patience. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, swole Jesus, yeah. He's like, he's been waiting 30 years 
for this and he's not going to fuck it up. It's like, I've been waiting for this for 30 years. What's another 10 years? Let's just take our time and do it properly. Now, exactly. uh, the new provisional coalition government was established on January 1st, 1946. Ho Chi Minh was to be named president and Nguyen Hai Tan, who's from the nationalist VNQDD party, was the vice president. Now, Ho and Tan go way back. They were both in exile in China together. They don't like each other, but they're going to tolerate each other to form this coalition government. Now, the cabinet of the government is going to be composed of two members of the Viet Minh, two from the VNQDD, two from the Democratic Party, two from the Dong Min Hoi, which was another Chinese-connected nationalist party, and two independents. So equal power sharing across this coalition Mm -hmm. of parties. The Viet Minh and the nationalists then agreed to stop attacking each other and to settle their differences by negotiations. So they're trying to get sort of an official government, even though they haven't had an election yet, but they're going to plan the elections. This is a provisional government with equal power sharing. Mm -hmm. Now, when it was announced inside the Viet Minh, inside the party, that Nguyen Hai Tan, guy from the VNQDD, was going to be vice president, one member of the party complained directly to Ho, said, Mm. this guy is, this guy's dirty. We shouldn't be dealing with him. And Ho replied, manure is dirty, isn't it? But if it's good for the rice plants, would you refuse to use it? And when some of, some of his colleagues in the party were questioning the decision to guarantee 70 seats in the government after the election to the opposition, he pointed out that the difference between the Viet Minh and their rivals was like that between fire and water. This is the, the Ho's colleague. He goes, oh, we're completely different. We're like fire and water. Right. Ho said, but if water is placed over fire, it would boil and then could be drunk safely. <laughs> that's i mean he, he like you said he's been thinking he's been spending decades thinking of every he's it kind of reminds me of caesar he's had decades to think of every possible contingency that could ever happen and he's just got this very i don't know what's if it's at all truistic or just like look whatever happens happens i'm going to deal with it as best i can but we cannot overreact because we are and we will remain the weakest players on the board and we have to remember that he's like part jesus part the kung fu master in kung fu uh right. teaching grasshopper <laughs> the part, blind guy part yeah. Confucius. We have to go back and remember that his father was a Confucian scholar. That's right. And he grew up, uh, you know, being studying Confucius. So very much like Confucius, full of wisdom, full of parables and analogies and yeah. metaphors to teach the people. Um, fascinating, fascinating guy. Yeah. So, national elections were held on January 6th, Ray, the first ever in the history of the country. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so, so they have the elections. There are some incidents of violence, some clashing, but they were able to hold the elections um, wherever the Viet Minh control the area. Now, supposedly, and you never know what to believe, but I certainly believe in the veracity of Ho Chi Minh more than a lot of other politicians. Supposedly, the Viet Minh candidates got 97% of the vote, but per the agreement that was forced upon them by the Chinese, 70 seats of the 30 would go to the opposition. And Ho ran himself... Wait, for, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. Wait, you said yeah. 70 seats of the 30. Of the th- I'm sorry, let me try that again. And 70 seats of the 300 would go to the opposition. Despite him winning 90, the, the Viet Minh winning 90% of the vote, they'd guaranteed 70 seats, uh, like a quarter, almost a quarter of the seats yeah. to the nationalists. So, and he, and he, and he was good at, on that promise. Yeah, again, this guy's. This is for the good of the country. Plus, the <clears throat> the Chinese are you know watching all of this. But again, I mean, these are his fellow countrymen. You know, Ho's probably got the attitude in the back of his head. Look, you hate me for now, but if we can get in government together and I can get a chance to sit down and talk with you, I might be able to turn you like I've turned these other Americans that I've been able to to make contact with. And even Ho himself, even though I don't think he probably needed to, ran for his own Hanoi constituency and supposed. Supposedly got 98.4% of the vote. So again, this guy is just, I think I think he's the belt buckle that's holding everything together and everybody is putting their faith in him and he's he's doing the best he can to, uh, to earn that. I think that means even the French in Hanoi must have voted for him. I think they were like, <laughs> listen, you know, I probably shouldn't do this. But he's the right but, man for the job, let's be honest. Yeah, it probably means yeah. I'm going to lose everything, but, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, according to Zap, uh, 90% of those eligible in the South voted as well. It wasn't just in the North, although the wow. election was only held in areas controlled by the Viet Minh mm-hmm. in the South, which is probably not a lot of the South at this stage. Yeah. Now... Um, you know, Ho, I think, was hoping at this point that if he could form a new coalition government, it would enable him to present a united front to the French and that Paris might be persuaded to offer national independence for the, to the Vietnamese if they could show a united front. Listen, we got this. We got this. We're, we're all together. We all want the same thing. In return for economic concessions... He was suggesting, listen, we want independence, but we'll be part of the French Union and we will oh. let you take our oil and our rubber and our tin and our coal. You know, we probably want to get paid for it, <clears throat> but we will, you know, we will do a deal. We'll become part of the trading block. Yeah. But we want we more control. Before. We want full control. Yeah. Um, De Gaulle basically gave him the middle finger, said, speak to the hand. <laughs> He refused to allow his representatives to negotiate until he had fully restored French authority in Indochina. Let our armies take full control and then we will negotiate. Which is always my favourite way to negotiate any situation is to have a gun pointed at someone's head when I'm negotiating with them. 
Yeah, and that's, that was part of the problem in the South. The British and then the French said, once we take control, we'll talk to you. And the committee for the South was saying, well, once you acknowledge Vietnamese independence, then we'll talk to you. So, yeah, of course, that's going to lead to military clashes because neither side is willing to give. In a letter to General Leclerc uh, late in September of '45, de Gaulle uh, gave him instructions like this. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to re-establish French sovereignty in Hanoi, and I am astonished that you have not yet done so. Oh, dick. So it's a bit, uh, bit, bit, bit brutal. Um, now, the French representatives in Indochina, though, were a little bit more realistic. Even Leclerc, the general, who was a hard-ass, wasn't so sure that this was possible. He told his aides, one does not kill ideas with bullets. One does not merely... (laughs) That's the Game of Thrones quote. One does not (laughs) merely something, something, there's something. (laughs) What's the line? You don't know. I don't know. We need to start speaking in parables, though. If they're going to do it, we need to do it. Walk into Mordor? Oh, it's from it's not it's not from Game of Thrones. It's Sean Bean, but it's from the, the right. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> one one does not simply walk into Mordor. There yeah. you go. One does not simply walk into mm. Northern Vietnam. Yeah, one does not simply kill an idea with bullets. Um, so even Leclerc thinks, you know, this is gonna turn into a large-scale war, and in his opinion, France had to avoid that. Even Leon Pignon, who was a Korea colonial official, goes on to become High Commissioner later on, but he met with Ho in late September '45, along with General Alessandri, um, mm-hmm. and described Ho as a strong and honourable personality Jean Cadier, we talked about the French commander, cabled back to Paris saying that um, a moderate faction within the government was amenable to a settlement, therefore they were Mm. worth talking to. So October 10th, Paris cabled Alessandri to open talks with the Hanoi government on all of Indochina. So since October... They had actually been in negotiations. So this is before the provisional government is announced. They've been in negotiations for several right. months. Um, Jean Saint-Ony, the head of the French intelligence operations uh, in Indochina, met with Ho for the first time in mid-October. He came away from the meeting genuinely fond of Ho and believed that at heart he was pro-French, which shows you just how fucking good Ho was. <laughs> in his book... Uh, Story of a Lost Peace, which he published in 1953, Saint-Ony spoke of Ho's vast culture, his intelligence, his incredible energy, his asceticism, and the incomparable prestige this gave him among the Vietnamese people. But, he said, Ho was also patient, willing to maintain an association with France 
for some specified period. He had struggled towards independence for 35 years. He said he could certainly wait a few years more. Nice. So even the head of French intelligence is saying this about <laughs> He's a decent chap. Like, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's good, man. Ho's good. Like, I like Ho. The Americans yeah. loved him. The French loved him. The British, not so much. The Chinese tolerated him. Yeah. But the beaver, you know, they're like, wow. I mean, the British didn't really get to meet him, so they didn't yeah. they were down south. But um yeah. all of these people are like, fuck, uh, Ho's, Ho's our man. Yeah, he's the real Why deal. did it turn into war? It's like so <laughs> yeah. depressing that Ho yeah. did everything right. They all loved him, but still. Uh, anyway, during these negotiations, Ho kept insisting. Like, he was willing to do a deal with the French, late 45, early 46. But he kept insisting that the word independence had to appear in the agreement, that that, that France had to promise that at some point the Vietnamese would get full independence. And at this juncture, the French were just digging in their heels. They were not willing to put that into an agreement, despite promising Truman that they would work towards it, they weren't prepared to commit to it in negotiations with Ho, even though, you know, he was willing to give them some time to work towards it. Yeah, all the the French representatives talking to Ho, their hands are basically tied because this is coming directly from de Gaulle. I do not want the word independence in any resulting treaty or announcement. So, So there's nothing they can do, and plus they don't probably feel like they should, but you're right, they do come to respect um, Ho Chi Minh. In mid-January, Kenneth Landon, a U.S. diplomat, he's a member of the State Department's Division of Southeastern Asian Affairs, he comes into the area and he talks to both sides. And again, Ho does what Ho has done so many times before. Not only does he explain his situation, he he, um, engenders uh, understanding and sympathy, but he gives even Landon a letter for Truman. And he's like, and, and Ho's like, look, you're giving the Philippines their independence. Will you not help us with ours? But this is just going to be one of many letter, letters that is that goes unanswered. But to make this even complicated, even more complicated for both sides, while these negotiations are going on, the Sino-French discussions are also going on in Chongqing. And that's the other part of this um, factor to bring the French in so the Chinese can leave. And don't get me wrong, Ho wants the Chinese out because he hates the French, but he does not trust the Chinese. And so he needs the Chinese to leave. And and again, it's that balancing act. Ho needs the French to get the Chinese out, but then Ho needs the French not to come completely in or don't stay forever. So it's a very complicated game that he's playing. When uh, Jean Santoni went back to Paris about the word independence being in the agreement, de Gaulle apparently Mm. lost his shit. He wrote back, (laughs) if I listened to such nonsense, soon France would have no more empire. Please reread my declaration of March 24 and adhere faithfully to the text. Damn. Like, you know, we've heard all through through the series, we've been talking about how everyone thought de Gaulle was a dick. Well, now you see why. Just a dick. Just a big, lanky, (laughs) celery stick dick. Eat his own foot medicine dick. Please refer to my previous email. That's pretty much what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
when the Americans in October, when the Americans in October asked him to clarify his position on Indochina, he wrote, it is unacceptable that the French government should now issue a new declaration concerning Indochina. That of much, I do this in French, it is unacceptable that the French government should now issue a new declaration concerning Indochina. That of much is sufficient. A reiteration would just complicate the situation. Merde. <laughs> okay, he didn't, he didn't put murder at the end. That no, was, uh, no. Just but again, he's been a dick to um, everybody. Yeah. To everybody, right? What a dick. Yeah. Fuck De Gaulle. Now, <laughs> talks went on for a couple of weeks. Um... From time to time, Ho would uh, ask if he could go and consult with the former emperor, Bao Dai, which the French found confusing. Why would Ho be so deferential to the former emperor, who was basically a traitor to his people? Um, But when one of Ho's colleagues in front of them referred to Bao Dai simply as his counsellor, Ho pulled him up and said, you might address him as my lord, as I do. Ooh. Was it another tactic, uh, a negotiation tactic, trying to get this guy face? And it also gave Ho time if he needed to step away. I think it's just another brilliant uh, tactic on Ho's, on Ho's part, if, if I'm reading it right. Yeah. I have to go away and consult with Bao Dai. He goes out the back, has a cigarette, cup of tea, <laughs> um, reads the paper, <laughs> then comes back in. No, sorry, he wasn't happy with that. Like, I used to do Woody this. Allen. Like when I was, when I was uh, in my early twenties, I worked for a debt collection company. May have told you at some point. And oh. I used to have to go and repossess people's cars and do all sorts of horrible shit. Fuck. And um, they would come in to try and negotiate, and they'd go. Well, they'd make an offer. You know, they'd offer to pay us half what they owed us. I go, okay. Well, listen. I don't have authority for that, but I have to go and ask my boss. So I just go away, go to the water fountain, make a coffee, speak to someone. Hey, what's up? Yeah? yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I'm talking to the boss. Oh, okay. Go back in. Sorry, listen, I went in hard for you, but uh, yeah, I tell tried. you what, this is what he's prepared to do. But uh, look, I went, I went in, gave it my best shot. Yeah. Now, um, apparently Ho even suggested publicly at this stage that Bao Dai might end up being the constitutional monarch of oh. the country. But Bao Dai eventually realised, I think he went along with this for a while and believed it, but eventually he realised he was just being used as a pawn to buy time but also to add a a level of credibility to this. Uh, Like for the French, these guys, well, this guy used to be our puppet emperor, now he's going to be the emperor, so we we know this guy, we own this guy, right? We can deal with this guy. If this guy's the head of the government, of the monarch, then we've probably, you know, it's things are going to be same old, same old. We can probably, we don't trust Ho, but we trust Bao Dai kind of thing, right? It's clever, clever technique on behalf of Ho. Yeah. But then in mid-January 1946, de Gaulle suddenly resigned. Now, was that, I was trying, I was trying to understand that. So I know that there is an election in November of 45, and I know that the communists won the most seats, but I think everybody still wanted de Gaulle to be the president. Uh, well, yeah, de Gaulle, I think, was still popular in some, right. uh, you know, some places, but uh, he couldn't get anything done, I think. Uh, he had to mm. work with the coalition. He couldn't just bark insulting um, <laughs> orders to people. Um, 
And uh, basically, he just spat the dummy. He just said, fuck you all. Uh, I'm Audi 5000, literally, because it's a French car and I'm French. Um, yeah. He basically, you know, who, you know what he was doing? He was doing a, he was doing a Tiberius. I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. Look, fuck you. I'm not getting my own way. I'm going and you're going to beg me to come back. I'm really going. I'm closing the door. This is it. If I go, if I leave, I'm never coming back. I mean it. Um, And just like Tiberius, people were like, oh, thank fuck he's gone. All right. Well, now what? (laughs) Let's get on with the work. Yeah. Yeah. People, uh, people wrote, uh, there was no cataclysm and the empty plate didn't crack oh. after he left. And oh. he was out of power for the next 12 years. So um, he'll be back. There you go. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to go. A bit like Tiberius, who was, I think, was out for 10 years. Yeah. Um, so maybe he should have listened to our show, De Gaulle, and he might have. Right. Played his hand a little bit more carefully, but anyway, De Gaulle's gone. Now the socialists, yeah. led by Felix Gouin, are uh, in control. Ho has new hopes. Hopey, hopeful Ho, he is now. He's like, <laughs> oh well, the socialists are in power. Right. I'm a communist. They're socialists. I lived in Paris. Probably know some of these guys. He probably, <laughs> you know, used to go whoring with Felix. Uh, he's like, surely. These guys are going to help me out. Yeah. But was not to be the case. So in mid-February, information comes out that the talks between the French and the Chinese seem to be, they seem to be about to wrap up. So the Chinese, it appears that they're going to be leaving uh, northern Indochina soon. Now, that means that the um, French and the Vietnamese need to get their talks going and concluded because if the Chinese leave... That is the only reason the French just are, you know, tearing through there to take northern China because they're not afraid of the Vietnamese. They know that their army isn't shit. They don't have any weapons. All they have is enthusiasm. But once the, all they, what they really fear is the Chinese. So they have to start doing something. So, again, around this time, how, do you, how did you say his name? Santini? Santini sees... Um, Santini? Santini yeah. starts talking to Hogan, and they're hoping for a possible compromise. And so they're working it because, and I think they're both sincerely working on this. And as you said earlier, Ho is like, well, maybe we could let the French come in because, you know, all they care about is money. So maybe we could work something out. We get the political power. They get some, they get some resources. Maybe we can work this out. But on February 20th, a Reuters report comes out and it gives all the details of the Sino-Japanese agreement. And one that, and a part of it is says that the French troops will be allowed to come to the north to replace the Chinese troops. So for all of this time that Ho's been waiting, waiting for the right moment, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a gap in between when the Chinese leave and the French come in because it looks like now the Chinese are going to let them come directly in right before they leave. So this is not looking good for Ho. Um, and again, this could get really bad because if the Chinese just pull out or, or if they let the French come in, the French are going to get well ensconced and Ho's government is going to come crashing down. And the reason the Chinese have agreed to pull out, remember I said earlier that they wanted something. Um, And what they got from the French was an end 
to French uh, extraterritorial rights in places like Canton and Shanghai. Uh, you know, going back to the Opium Wars in the 1860s, I think we've talked um, on our uh, War on Drugs series, I think it was, we talked a lot about this, uh, where various European mm-hmm. powers and the Americans to a lesser extent basically took control of China for all intents and purposes and uh, in certain parts of it anyway and fed them opium and were uh, 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 basically using their superior military might to extract trading concessions from the Chinese. Well, what Chiang Kai-shek wanted was for the French to bat the fuck out of China and they agreed Mm -hmm. to do that in return for China pulling out. So if you want to know why... Chang sent 150, 180,000 troops into Tonkin. That's why. Um, right. To, to get something to, right. that he wanted from the French. We will leave it because there was no way the French could take on the Chinese any more than the Vietnamese could. So he got what he wanted, and the Chinese were like, Sorry, ho, you're on your own. On your own, ho. Right. Ho, your own, ho. 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 <laughs> So, so, <laughs> ho alone. Oh, that's good. Ho alone. We should do a picture of Ho with his hands up to his face and his mouth open. We just do yeah, Ho alone. I like that. So, Did you see yeah, the Macaulay Culkin Google ad this week? No. Macaulay Culkin's made an ad for Google Assistant and he's basically recreated a handful of scenes from the movie. All you know, all the sets made to look exactly like the original, and he's you know playing Kevin McAllister. Um, it's quite cute, quite funny. Okay, check yeah, it out. You can check that out. Yeah. So, so when the report, when this um, Reuters report gets out, the nationalists in the north go absolutely apeshit. They start organized demonstrations. They call for a general strike. Some of them even want Ho to step down because they think he's getting too buddy-buddy with the French. And there is some fighting in the street. So things are starting to fall apart very quickly. Something has to happen. But again, like you said, the Chinese are getting what they want. So they're getting ready to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. Um, now, Ho, obviously desperate now to sign a deal because uh, he knows that the French are on their way. He says he's willing to drop the word independence from the agreement and will mm-hmm. settle for a phrase that says the French government recognise in Vietnam the principle of self-government. But Diagenlo, the high commissioner, the warrior monk, refused right. to even give him that. Oh, God. No. This, and this is yeah. the socialist. Like, he's taking orders from Paris now, the socialist. No. Damn. So he won't if, even give him that. Eventually, French are coming, can't sign an agreement, nationalists are protesting in the streets, demanding his resignation. Ho actually approached Bao Dai, the former emperor, and asked mm-hmm. him to take over. He went to him cap in hand and said, look, I failed. Can't do a deal with the French. Can't do a deal with the nationalists. It's all over. I'm done. You should form a new government and uh, see if you can do any better than me. Bao wow. Dai didn't want to do it. 
spoke to some of his advisors. They said, you should do it. He decided to do it. But then the next day, Ho came back and said, sorry, changed my mind. Took, it, took the yeah. letter that he wrote of resignation, tore it up, <laughs> ate it, <laughs> swallowed it. I was doubting myself, but I'm back now. I had some herbal tea, green tea. We're all good now. Let's do this thing, son. Apparently, he had reached an agreement with the Chinese general, Xiao Wen, um, who didn't like the French. And Zhao Wen had put pressure on the nationalists to back down. Um, so things settled down. I went back to bed. I said, sorry, changed my mind. Yeah. Um, and then by late February, the uh, French fleet was preparing to sail from Saigon to Hanoi. On March 2nd, 1946, the first meeting of the new official Vietnamese, Vietnamese government after the elections uh, was scheduled to take place. And during right. that, Ho announced the formation of a national resistance committee, the Oi Ban Dan Tok Chang Chen, to carry right. on the struggle for full independence and announced a national advisory group to be chaired by Bao Dai. Wow. So, so again, they had their uh, election, I think it was on January 6th, I think if I remember correctly. Uh, but the point is now, again, Ho is very popular. He is made president again. Tan, I'm not sure how to say his last name, is again made vice president. They start working out, you know, like you said, committees to resist the French, committees to work on the country. Uh, but all this time, the French are sailing up from Saigon. So it's starting to get tense here. Then on March 5th, Ho called a secret meeting of the, the Viet Minh to discuss strategy. Now, some wanted to take up arms immediately against the mm -hmm. French. Others suggested they ask the Chinese for military support against the French. Ooh. But Ho realised that the Vietnam, Viet Minh forces were just too weak in the north as well as obviously in the south and that they needed to find a way to negotiate some sort of a temporary peace agreement. At right. one point, he even, he even said to them, can't you understand what would happen if the Chinese stayed? You're forgetting our past history. Whenever the Chinese came, they stayed for a thousand years. The French, on the other hand, can only stay for a short time. Eventually, they'll have to leave. Later on, he was talking to a French historian, Paul Mousse, when he said that he told his people then, it is better to sniff French shit for a while than to eat China's for the rest of our lives. <laughs> so you gotta okay. love it, man. <laughs> so he's thinking, I guess, look, France is weak. They're putting on a display of strength here, but they're weak. Um, I would much rather have weak masters than powerful masters. The Chinese are closer and yeah. bigger, and they're right. going to be more powerful. Uh, better for us to have the – if we have to choose, let's have the French. It will be easier for us to get rid of the French than it would be for us to get rid of the Chinese. Yeah. Now, when the French ships finally entered Haiphong Harbour up in the Gulf of Tonkin, up in the north, the head of the – Seahorse. <laughs> On the morning of March 6th, an agreement still hadn't been reached yes. between the Vietnamese government and the French, and so Chinese batteries in the cities started firing at the French ships oh, when they tried shit. to land. 
Like, right? no, agreement hasn't been reached. You can't come. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is at 8.30 the in the morning. Yes. Yeah. The ships started shelling the city. Oh, shit. Or the shit. port, I right. guess, of Haiphong. Fighting continued for several hours. Both sides suffered casualties. The Chinese negotiators are, are leaning hard on the French and the Vietnamese to come to some sort of an agreement. Strike a bargain, or you'll find yourselves fighting us. Both of you, we will take over. And in the oh. afternoon of March 6th, 1946, they finally signed an agreement under intense pressure from the Chinese. They signed what was called a preliminary convention. Mm-hmm. The French recognised the Republic of Vietnam as a free state within the Indo-Chinese Federation and French Union. And the Vietnamese agreed to welcome 25,000 French troops for a period of five years to relieve the departing Chinese forces. And France agreed to accept the results of a future popular referendum on the Mm -hmm. issue of unifying the three regions. Huh. That I, I don't see that happening unless the Chinese put pressure on everybody. But finally, even though there's some bloodshed, we have an agreement. Now, who knows who's sincere in all this, but the point is, for right now, there's still there's some kind of agreement, and Ho is still in power, and Ho still has his government, so he's got to be thinking, this is the best possible turnout I could have hoped for. Yeah. It's not bad, honestly. Now, apparently when Saint-Denis at the signing ceremony raised a glass and said to Ho that they had ended the possibility of a major war, Ho replied, we are not yet satisfied because we have not yet won complete independence. He paused and added, but we will achieve it. Oh, snap. He's not done. A a ho's work is never done. (laughs) Now, to Western observers and visitors at the time, Mm -hmm. Ho Chi Minh was the poster boy for both conciliation and determination. Right. There was two American intelligence officers, Frank White and George Wicks, who visited him around this period. He told them that he had fond memories of living in Boston and New York, and he had huge admiration for American principles that were enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. And then he asked them to convey back to Washington his high hopes for U.S. support Mm -hmm. for his nation's quest for independence. And to a senior British diplomat, Ho condemned De Argenlo's effort to create a separatist movement in Cochin, China, which is something right. that they, the French had demanded that it was, uh, they wanted it to be a, a separate French colony, Cochin, China. Um, but he admitted to the British that his people were not ready to take on the full duties of citizenship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we want full independence, but okay, we're not ready quite yet. Yeah. And he said that's why Vietnam was eager to get advice and counsel from France, from Britain, and from the United States 
as long right. as it was granted in the spirit of cooperation and not in the form of a master-slave relationship. George Wicks, the US intelligence guy, wrote back home, when you talk to him, he strikes you as quite above the ordinary run of mortals. Perhaps it is the spirit that great patriots are supposed to have. Surely he has that. Long struggling has left him mild and resigned, still sustaining some small idealism and hope that war can be avoided. But I think it is particularly his kindliness, his simplicity, his down-to-earthiness. I think Abraham Lincoln must have been such a man, calm, sane, and humble. And the British diplomat wrote that Ho was an outstanding character with excellent idiomatic English. I came away with the impression that I'd been talking to a sincere patriot, though obviously imbued with all the characteristics of a convinced revolutionary. There is no doubt in my mind that he is prepared to go to any lengths to attain his object. Wow. And that's that's where we're going to leave it. Um, before we go, Ray, I want to ask you, before we started the series on Ho, how much did you know about Ho? N- I, nothing, hardly anything. Or if I did, I didn't remember it. Hardly anything at all. And what's your impression of him now after, what have we done, uh, nine episodes on Ho? I can honestly say that of out of the five years that we've been talking about various people throughout history, to me, and I'm and I'm really trying not to overdo this, he he comes across as the most sincere patriot out of anyone. He truly wanted what was best for his people, and it had to be killing him on the inside to be so patient. But he was pragmatic and he was realistic. But for me, he is the most sincere character in history that we've come across. What about you? Oh, well, I don't know about the most, but yeah, look, he's certainly, I mean, look, I'm so impressed uh, with this guy. And and obviously everybody who met him was impressed uh, with him at the time, even the French. Like he just, uh, I mean... I don't think you can fake that. I think he was genuinely wise, um, intelligent, um, uh, patient, mm-hmm. um, poetic. He was a he was part guru, part warrior, part um, statesman. Yeah, and and just an astounding. Uh, living in poverty yeah. for decades, um, sick. You know, ill as we know a lot of the time, yeah. just but just determined, resolute. Wow, like inspirational, man, like unbelievably inspirational. Right, absolutely. Well, that's it. We'll be back. Um, uh, 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 what date is this? 21st of December. Okay, well, this is not going out until like January. We'll be back at some point. Another couple of weeks with more. Don't yeah, know what we're going to do next. Maybe more into China War. We might take a break and talk about something else. I don't know. We'll work it out. But um, look after yourselves. Be nice, people. Ciao.
military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.